You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has come out with a new model, and that model is the 110 Ultralight. At under 6 pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 Action. This comes in a variety of calibers. It has a gray AccuFinish stock with adjustable comb height. This is an awesome rifle, and uh, basically Savage is at it again. These guys have done amazing things in the past, and now they're doing amazing things in the future. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. As you guys are going to learn today on the podcast, native vegetation is so incredibly important. So I'm going to take a minute to shout out to Pure Air Natives Custom Seed Shop out of St. Louis, Missouri. If you guys have any needs for restoring um, native landscapes, custom mixes, anything from wetland mixes all the way up to CRP, government cost share stuff, or you're just looking for individual types of species to be able to um, utilize on your property, give them a shout. Follow them on social media. Uh, reach out. They are fantastic folks to work with. Extremely knowledgeable on being able to put together um, custom mixes for your region. What species are going to be best suited and adapted to the sites that you guys are planting in? So, Frank... Yes. You're back. I am back. Woo. Thank you, Matt. I Thanks think I can hear the roar from everyone out there yes, right now. Yes, yeah, everybody yeah, is yeah, Frank, everybody Frank, is Frank. really going to be tuning in. They're calling their neighbors, calling yeah. their friends. Don't miss hey, this, y'all. Hey, download this. Frank's on. Frank, Frank's on. Yep. He's, hey. You, you heard him last time. Frank's back. I'm back. You're not going to want to miss it. Nope. So I have Frank on the line. And I say line, but we're sitting here we're rolling sitting down the road. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're covering some ground today, headed back from a – awesome consultation 
in um, beautiful southeast Kansas. What a fantastic and awesome place. I know the Flint Hills is like near and dear to your yeah, heart. Yeah, the Flint Hills is, oof, yeah. Right I've here. spent a lot of time in the Flint Hills doing prairie chicken research, but also hunting. Um, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Uh, we were in the southern Flint Hills, kind of on the edge of the cross timbers. So it was a mix of, of cross timbers, um, riparian bottomland, mm-hmm. and then the, then the vast Flint Hills vistas. And we were at the very tail end of May. Uh, the native pastures all around yes. have been burned for the most part. They're green and lush. Um, cattle are out there. It's you know it's the time of growth. It's the time of reproduction. Um, fawns are dropping. Turkey nests are beginning to hatch. Um, quail are starting to get the itch to lay their eggs. It's it's the heart of the beginning of the reproductive season. Yeah, and and I think that's a perfect intro into today's podcast because as land managers, we have to be 100% mindful of what's happening and occurring on the landscape right now all across the country. It is such a critical time for the species that we chase or the species we like to observe, the species we want to hunt, we want to make more prolific on the landscape, whatever you want to call it, however you want to, whatever you want to do with them, this is a window. Yes. I mean, when it, so, so I'm talking fawns dropping, birthing, lactation. We're talking turkey, turkey nest, turkey nest, um, poults hatching, mm-hmm. broods are, are being reared. Same thing in the quail world. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially, I think, where the rubber meets the road every single year when it comes to the habitat. It's like, okay, are we going to have a better year? Are we going to have a better hatch? Are we going to have better success? Are we going to have more cover for fawns? Are we going to have escape cover? Are we going to have more forage for lactating does? That is the mm-hmm. most critical window a deer can period go through. More important and more demanding dietary-wise than even growing antlers. So all those folks who are worried about growing antlers, yes, it's important, and it, it the dietary needs increases. There's a bunch of deer over there. There's a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. They're they're eating wheat. I yeah, think. they're filling up their dietary needs right <laughs> they there. They certainly are. Look at them grow antlers. Look, Look at, at them Look at produce them. some milk as we talk. But it, the lactation side of things is way more demanding on a body than, a, than growing antlers. And, and so we have to be extremely mindful of all those things that are going on. And, and the other things that we have to be mindful of are certainly some things that we can't even control, like weather oh yeah and and we're going to talk about how and what needs to be present on the landscape and i was joking before recording this that the podcast would be titled something to the extent of like managing the littles yeah which is really a poor joke but essentially it's if we don't start caring and being concerned with what happens as soon as these nests are built created eggs are dropped they're incubated they're hatched and same thing with fawns we have got to be mindful of that type of cover on the landscape um if we're trying to at all benefit these species and hunt them on a consistent basis on a given property yes it's it's absolutely critical there's been there's been a lot of research that that have been done on on game birds 
Bob Whites, ringneck pheasants, prairie chickens, um, wild turkeys. And, and a lot of it is looking at um, what is driving population growth. Mm-hmm. Well, is that nest success? Is it juvenile survival? Is it overwinter survival? Is it adult survival? There's all these parameters. Um, one of the big parameters that is driving our game bird populations in many places is juvenile survival. And so that's super important. So if we want to be able to harvest a hard gobbling two-year-old, well, it has to start off as an egg, and it's an incredible amount of luck to get from an egg to a hard gobbling two-year-old that we can harvest, two-year-old it's, turkey, right? That There has to be a, I mean, that's just... The stars need to yes, align. Yes, There's no guarantee, I mean, absolutely zero guarantee. And the percentage, if you look at it, from the number of eggs hatched to the number of or number of eggs laid, excuse me, to the number of two-year-olds, it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous proportion. So, so uh, basically, so this is some of the most, let's say, common research, uh, or mo- I say common, the latest research, but but for a poult, a single poult to be raised past 30 days, there's a 7% chance. One poult out of a nest. Yeah. Yeah. 7% chance. Yeah. And that's to 30 days, right? 30 days. A and lot so, of things happen after 30 days, yeah. but still. Yeah. And that's so only one. Right, right. So the so the 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 cards are stacked against these or the deck is stacked against these these birds or these these animals that that we want to harvest that we want to hunt. Um, and and the, some of the we have absolutely no control of. And we're going to talk about weather. That's the big one that we always they always say we can't control the weather. Um, and we can't, but there are some things that we maybe we can do to mitigate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things that we can have an influence on in terms of at least assisting those potential nests to be successfully hatched. And then for those broods to make it to 14 days in Turkey so that they can fly up into trees yep. or in Bob White's to at least make it to that three to four week period then where they can go off and, and, and become considered, you know, part of, of an adult covey. Um, there's, there's some things that we can do to really to help that process and at least give them a little boost um, to, to, to help them out yeah. to some extent. And, and regardless of the, of the weather that we have, and, and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that we'll, we'll get to. And one of the things, though, that I, that I want to talk about here is, is weather. And we, we always hear it. And, and I've heard from a, from a number of people, a number of hunters, you know, when we talk about um, turkey populations that are declining really across the eastern United States in many places. Um, and bobwhite quail populations that have been in long-term decline for a lot of reasons. Uh, but we talk about whether, especially when we're talking about turkeys, and we're talking about pulp production, I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm tired of hearing about weather. Yeah. They always say, well, we've had a rainy spring. That's why our turkey numbers are declining. I'm sick of hearing about that. My farm, it, we didn't have any drastic floods on my farm, and I still don't have any turkeys, or my turkeys mm-hmm. are still declining. Well, and that may be the case, right? This farm that, that you have may be completely upland farm where there's no riparian areas that could potentially flood. Well, the rain is much more 
than just flooding out of nests, uh, right? Think like, yeah, let's think about that for a second. So if you're, if you're one of those people who is making that claim, if you have two creeks that flow through your property, maybe the bottom land that would be potential flood is, is let's just say the property we are on today. I don't know. Maybe 30% of the property would actually be flooded. Like, it's not a, a huge portion of the property right, itself. Right, right, And so, like, even if you're thinking just just from a flooding action or that rain is washing away, destroying nests, all this, that's still such a small portion right. of many, many properties and the landscape itself. I mean, you look across all of America, the actual areas that are potential floods... It's very small. Yeah, it's very small. I mean, and, and, and I think, yeah, and I think a lot of hunters, when when state wildlife agencies talk about rainy springs or, or rainy weather, are thinking about flooding. Yeah, thinking about flooding out of nests, and that's really not what we're talking about f- from a from a turkey standpoint or even a quail, a quail standpoint. Yep. Right. So the rainfall can have a couple of well, more than that, but but can have some some major disadvantages. One, um, and you saw this in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, when turkeys or any kind of game bird gets wet repeatedly, they smell more. They yeah. they yeah. have a stronger scent. If you've got a wet dog, we've always, you know, anytime you have around a wet dog. Oh, it smells it, like wet yeah, dog. Everyone like knows wet, what yeah. that smells like. It stinks. Even we can smell it. Well, think about a hen turkey that's huddled under a blackberry bush and it gets rained on. And she's sitting still she's sitting and idle still. and stinks. Yep. And then a coyote or bobcat or whatever passes downwind of her and bingo. Right? Well, of course they're going to smell her, yeah. right? And so so that's called the wet hen effect. Mm-hmm. And that can increase predation rates on right. turkeys. So <clears throat> if the hen is depredated, well, then the nest is not going to be re-incubated by another hen You've lost, not only have you lost your hen, but you've lost the, the nest mm-hmm. that, that she was sitting on. And even if she escapes the predation event, the critter is probably going to come back and get the eggs. <coughs> Correct. Right? So there's one way that, that rain can get us. But probably the biggest effect is after these, these poults in, 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 for turkeys or these chicks, for quail, pheasants, prairie chickens, whatever else we're talking about, before they can thermoregulate, they get wet, right? Yes. If they get wet with rain and they stay wet, they get chilled. And especially if the temperature is below 30, below 70 degrees, if they get wet and the temperature is below 70, they really suffer dramatically from exposure and they <clears throat> die because they're chilled. I think that it's, it's <clears throat> extremely <throat> important. And let's say the backbone, if you're going to grasp something from this podcast is... this point that we're trying to make here if you don't understand and can't relate just from a perspective standpoint for a little bit here on a baby quail or a poult or a fawn perspective of their time on the landscape as they're being born hatched trying to get to a size where they can fly and avoid predators you have to put yourself in their perspective because when you when you look at a poult or you look at a young quail those feathers 
they're not feathers at that point. No, like they're they're it's fluff. It, exactly. You don't you don't just come out of an egg, and you're just fully gowned with feathers like you yep. would see a normal turkey. We're talking like everyone's gone to Tractor Supply or some co-op out there and seen baby chickens. Oh like, yeah, they are. It it literally is fluff. I mean, it's it's like the finest, softest, tiny coat, and you can see right to their skin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. imagine if you dunk that little guy in water. Yeah, right. I mean, he's come like he's dripping, he's soaking wet, and that little bit of, I'm going to call it duff or fluff of a feather, mm-hmm. beginnings of a feather, is laying flat against it's not protecting it's not holding heat against their body and they're completely exposed and so you said ambient temperature if it's 70 degrees or below think of the spring rain yeah again right now we're a chick we're back in the mindset we're on the ground we're we're four inches tall people Mm -hmm. trying to find some bare ground if it's out there to be able to just walk and then it rains on you and everybody knows that how cold, even as humans, some of these spring rains are. Yes. And imagine if you don't have a jacket, you can't stay warm. Yep. You don't have overhead shelter or canopy from umbrella-type species or shrubs to be able to huddle underneath. Mm-hmm. And you are talking about earlier the painting the picture of, of, a, of a great mother hen or a, a um, quail, and she's got her wings spread yep. out, and she's trying to act as an umbrella to shield yep. her chicks so they don't get wet. Yep. But there's only so much room. Yeah, that's right. And so when they when they do get wet, they go mama puts her wings out and she broods those that's the brood, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the name comes from. She broods those chicks or those poults under her wings and against her body. Her shoulders kind of yes. come up and spreads yep. her and wings. She's taking the brunt of it, but she can't keep them from getting wet completely because yep. they're they, but she she doesn't typically brood them until the rain starts falling. So they get out there and the rain's falling and they get under mama's wings. Um, a proportion of them are going to make it, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And so rain is a real r- rain and low temperatures are can be a real detriment to these game bird populations. There's been some research in in uh, Georgia and Florida that f- that that found that bobwhite. Um, Chick survival between zero and thirty days declined. So, so from hatch from to hatch 30 to thirty days, days yep. declined fourteen percent for each quarter inch rain event. Mm-hmm. Right. So over quarter, that thirty day over period. That, yeah, yeah, between that thirty day period. So after that, it was it was quail were big enough. They were able to, you know, they they start their their oil feather be- mm-hmm. comes in and they start preening oil between their feathers. Then they get flight feathers and, and, and things become become better. What's but, that, oh, it's a but neuropigial gland or something like that? that sure. They've got. Yeah. I, think it's, I think all birds have, not, not to say all birds, but it's a, that's the type of gland that produces that waxy yep. coating. Yeah, and if you, and if, can put if, in you their clean a, if you clean a gobbler, um, cut the tail off, yep. and you can look on that the top of that fan, they've got a little gland there yep. that's full of oil. So they'll reach back. They'll get oil. Always see birds. Have you seen birds loafing, preening yeah. during the day? They're always reaching back to their tail feather. Yep. That's what they're getting yeah, on their they're beak. Yeah, they're getting that oil on their beak, and then they're putting it between their feathers. Well, a baby quail or a baby turkey can't do that yet. Nope. You know, when it's when it's between zero and 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 thirty days or, or fourteen days of a, uh, of age, and and turkeys, quail are especially vulnerable 
because they don't fly up into trees. Mm -hmm. Up to about 14 days, turkeys don't fly up into trees. But after 14 days, they're a little better off because they can at least fly up into a tree and escape predators, right? And, and we talked about on a podcast weeks ago, that's why we love shrubs. Yeah. Those quick little flights yep. they can get up yep. seven foot tall in a canopy. They don't have to fly all the way up 60 feet into the top of a tree. That's a huge flight for mm. a young bird. Quick flights, flutter up into a shrub, yeah. get away, get out of danger. Right, right. So back to that, this whole rain rain thing, a quarter inch rain is not a lot, really, mm-hmm. if you think about it. But Very but, common in, the, yes, in many, many yes. springs. But, um, but quail production or quail survival declines, at least in the, at least in the Florida research, declined about 14% for each quarter inch rain event. So that's significant. So mm-hmm. the the point is is if we want great game bird production, we need to hope for 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 springs that that our rain isn't. We just don't have an ex- excessively wet spring, right? Which we're we've always going to get it. We're, yeah, I mean that we we can't wish and we wouldn't wish for no rain. Right, right. We don't but. Yeah, absolutely, but we can if if we can just have average springs or. You know, whatever. But these excessively wet springs that we've been having mm-hmm. lately have, have really been detrimental and, and have really hurt us. Uh, so I, I really wanted to, to paint that picture and, and, to, and to let folks really understand that it's not about the flooding that we're really worried about with Correct. these game bird populations. Correct. It's more about these little chicks that get wet. They can't thermoregulate. They cannot get dry. Mama can't take care of all of them. And then they perish. They, they, they just don't make it through the night. Right. They don't make they it just, through the day. They just don't make it. Um, they perish. They're dead. Yeah. And even even hard rain. I'll talk and I'll go mm-hmm. a little bit about hard rain can even be um, detrimental to adults. So when we were doing our quail research in Missouri, we had over, an, over a time period of about two days. It was April 27th, 28th, and 29th. We had about a 10-inch rain event. I and, this was yeah. like three years ago. Yep, 2017. Yep. yep, about a 10 inch rain event in southwest Missouri. It came right sort of in the heart of turkey season, and we had a bunch of quail radio collared on five different study sites uh, across southwest Missouri. We lost adult quail on every study site. We lost. They actually died. They could not get even adult quail could not get dry enough, and the temperature got low. And in one, we, we actually lost 12% wow. of our radio collared birds to that rain event. Wow. This was adult birds. Mm-hmm. This was in April. And, um, and granted, an adult bird, everyone's like, oh, adults. Well, they're still six ounces. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're still small. They're small. But it still is an adult bird that yeah. is lost and to this to cold rains. Yeah. And what was a real kicker is this wasn't in December or January uh-huh. when those birds may have been harvested by hunters anyway these were our breeders these had made it through hunting season these were the guys that were going to breed so that was another kick in the shorts because you know we we actually lost breeding breeding capital there so so rain and and rainy weather is super super detrimental at times for game bird populations especially young chicks Um, and 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 it's and again it's it's mostly on the chicks and not so much on, on the nests or or, a right. lot, or extensive flooding over vast areas. But there are some things that we can do to to sort of mitigate it and to sort of give the birds maybe a leg up mm-hmm. or at least 
mitigate our losses. We got to know we're going to lose some percentage of them, but maybe we can we can reduce the, the percentage of the birds we lose, right? Absolutely, and and really even. I don't have figures or numbers, however, on deer and and potential of losing them to cold, cold rains. But I'm going to say that I feel very confident it was going to potentially weaken them Mm -hmm. as they are trying to nurse. I mean, they're they're not laying right there against mama staying warm. She's not covering them. The only thing that's covering them is the habitat that we provide during these times. Yep. And so we have to be, from a land management standpoint, offering, producing what it is that is actually going to provide that type of cover. They will seek it out and they will find it. But a, a, a young fawn that's just been born, maybe it's still wet and it starts dumping rain. Like it's going to start out in really rough conditions. And, uh, that's not going to be good, and we'll get into kind of the importance of starting out super strong and making incredible individuals down the road, how important that is. So um, it all comes back to habitat. Yeah, that's right. So when we talk about what are some of the things that we can do from a, let's, let's talk about a game bird perspective uh, before before we get into the deer stuff, what, what are some of the things that we can do from a, from a, a habitat manipulation or habitat management standpoint that we can maybe mitigate some of our losses. Well, one of the things that we can do is is provide really good brood cover. And I know we talk about brood cover a lot. There's been a lot of podcasts on yeah, brood cover. Yeah, but we cover. have to. We have to. It's super critical. <laughs> it I mean, is. it's it, really, it, it, really it is, is really limiting our quail and, and upland game bird populations. I, I fully believe that. The yep. brood cover is one of our biggest limiting factors. And so I will always pound the importance of brood cover. But brood cover, in its in its really its description, is is bare ground at ground level, mm-hmm. lots of interstitial spaces between plants. Break that down. What does that even mean for someone who's never heard that word? Okay, so we're talking about either single stemmed plants that have uh, a really nice canopy, ragweed. So ragweed. Think of an umbrella, right? An umbrella has one central stem, and then it yep. has this this canopy over it. So. That is great brood brood habitat. Broom, broom to move. Yeah, broom weed is one of them. Mm-hmm. That's really great. There's a um, there's there's a host of them. A lot of our native Tons forbs yep. are that way. But and we're talking about bare ground. We're not talking about a giant plowed field. We're talking about spaces between plants, so that these birds, when they're hatched and they're the size of a bumblebee, and their legs are even smaller and weaker, they can move from one ragweed plant to the next, or one little blue stem plant to the next and not get hung up in the grass or not mm-hmm. get hung up in the vines there's there's room for them to move around so uh, if you've ever been in a in a, a a field let's say a crop field that has been fallowed i mean that's mm-hmm. i mean that's exactly what that is or if you've been in a pasture that's been burned and it's coming back and the thatch is gone, and there's room between plants to run around in. That's what we're talking about, brood it, habitat. If you want to hear more about fallow fields and the management of those, be sure to go and listen to a podcast we recorded with Kip Adams. It's titled, Do Soybeans Actually Grow Antlers? We talk about the importance of fallow fields, and you can learn more about it yeah. there. But 
that space and, and that picture is super important for yeah. people to to have in their mind because truthfully where else are they going to see it and right. a lot of people and the reason I, I i asked you to specify what that meant is because people can't even imagine it because yeah. it's hardly out there yes we really don't have it on the landscape very much we it's it's super it's super important but it's super rare and it's a wonder we have these species even at all really because mm-hmm. in the numbers that we have because the brood habitat is so poor in a lot of cases but it, but it, the really cool thing about it is is these this umbrella effect sort of mitigates some of that rain now a real hard pounding rain that we drove through this morning <laughs> it's going to yeah. blow through anything yeah. but a light, gentle rain, you know, or one that comes down fairly, just a quick thunder shower that comes through. Um, there's going to be rain that gets to the ground, of course, but that brood canopy, that canopy on a ragweed or a sunflower or broomweed or whatever we're talking, mare's tail, mm-hmm. will help to to displace some of that rain. And the cool thing about it is that the bare ground that's between these plants dries out quickly, right? Because guess what? There's sun. There's sun. The sun <laughs> then pops out yeah. like it did this afternoon. Dries and it right it dries up. that that bare ground up, and the, the quail, turkeys, whatever we're talking about, can get drier quicker. Get back to foraging yes. and growing. And we talked about earlier in a conversation before we started this about closed canopy forest. Mm-hmm. And a closed canopy forest after rain is a very damp place. And, and it takes a long time to dry out. Absolutely, absolutely. We're talking, we're talking days for yeah. leaf leaf yeah. litter. Yeah, yeah. If you're yeah, days? so if you're wanting to burn a closed <laughs> canopy forest, and you get a rain, you can burn it. If it's a prairie, you can burn it the next morning. Yeah, right. Yeah. If it's closed canopy forest, good mm, luck. Yeah, you're not bl- burning it anytime soon. And everyone can relate to that. And I think that's that's important to yeah. kind of nail on is. Everyone knows what closed canopy forest is like. You go in there, that let's say it rains in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon in a spring, af, you know, spring afternoon, mm-hmm. right? The next day, the morning, you're, you're like, oh, I love these ones because I can get closer to that turkey on the roost because it's right. so quiet because that's it's right. still so damp. That's right. That's not what we want. No, and and a lot of our turkey populations are forced to live in that habitat because they that's are. what they've got, right? They're forced. So. That's what they. That's what they've got. So if they get wet, they are going to have a harder time getting dry, versus a brood that has access to abundant open space. Don't or, you? I'm sorry. I did not no, mean no, to no. cut you out. But don't you think that it's extremely ironic that not only does the sun light that we need to and are is required to grow these plants also does something else for these these broods that's so incredibly important like it's it's like why are we trying to brood and and grow turkeys and and quail in areas where there's I mean there's just not sunlight we yeah. we cannot do it right if you if you're it's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole if you want those types of species and if you want to be a producer of those species on your property, well, you better have sunlight yep. that gets down to the ground. You better have a little bit of bare dirt where these animals can run around on. You better have an abundance of weeds 
If not, then you're not doing it yeah. consistently. Yep. It's absolutely critical. So recently, my family and I have become chicken farmers. Right? Ah. So we got a bunch of three-day-old chicks. Nice. Well, we Perfect had... Perfect learning. Oh, almost, yeah. Right? Oh, great. It was, it was awesome to be able to show my sons, hey... Look, look at what we're doing to try mm-hmm. to raise these baby chicks. Now think about a turkey in the woods trying to raise her chicks. Sure. So we had to have a brood lamp that these rascals could get under that brood lamp. Essentially a heat lamp. Yep, a heat lamp. Yep, to keep it, you know, yep. 90 degrees or something to, to keep them warm. Steamy. Yeah, yeah. So think about the sun as one ginormous brood lamp, right? That's yeah. that's nature's brood lamp. These, it's critical. Mm-hmm. You know, the mama, mama hen can provide some protection against her body. But the quicker that the cover can dry out and, and, and get, get back to normal, get dry, the better off these chicks are going to be. So if we can provide as much of that habitat across the landscape that we can, then... Th- then are you telling me we have more gobbling turkeys? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yep. Yep. So that's super critical. Um that that these birds that we provide those are some of the things that we can do to mitigate those if that effect of the rain is at least provide habitat that's going to dry out quicker that may shield them from some of the rain and and give them a fighting chance versus you know what's typically out there in a closed canopy system or a or a cool season dominated grassland or even a warm season dominated grassland it doesn't matter mm-hmm. a grassland that's that's choked with with thatch and and no bare ground is not going to dry out very fast compared to one that's got a lot of forbs and a lot of room to grow absolutely i think you hit the nail on the head and and really kind of brought to light a lot of the issues or the misinformation that we have with weather conditions and how that then relates to habitat and what we can do to create better habitat better plant communities and therefore produce more of the game species that we want. If we don't have accurate information out there, well, then we're, we're, we're going to be doing things that yield just poor results. And so we have to understand the, the truth behind um, the rainfall. We have to understand the truth behind um, the power of the sun, what that sun regenerates and offers. It's, it's not just something to go outside and get a tan. Like, I, I don't, it's like going back to biology 101 to understand where the source of energy comes from. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm just so fascinated by it. And I know I'm kind of nerdy and you're nerdy yeah. too. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> but isn't it just incredible that something so many thousand light years or whatever the heck it is away yeah. has so much importance to producing a gobbling turkey yeah. at, at two years, like producing quail to be able to flush and scare the tar out of yeah, you right. when you're walking through the brush or to produce the forage required to grow antlers. Like, you can't make that up. Yeah, it's almost as, as if there was some intelligent design behind it, right? I, I know. I don't get it. Imagine that. <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's so it's so intricate and it's so detailed that it's like, if if one stinking thing was out of line or out of place, the world would not be the same, number mm, one. That's right. Our lives would not be the same. 
And what we see today on a daily basis would be, I mean, it'd just be drastically different. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't, we would not even have these species to be able to chase and hunt and have fun with and manage and dream about. It is so critical that we understand the importance. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a sun worshiper, but we have to know yeah. the value of the sun and what it does provide for us and know that that sun was placed there by a very more important person, the creator. And that has a super important role to what it is that we're doing out here. And if we slow down and take time to, to look at the way nature works, we can see that incredibly intelligent design in nature right Right. before our our eyes. That is, ah, I mean, that is exactly, that is a, a great way to put it is you know if we look at how quail turkeys are built whitetails are built what what they need what is the driving factors yeah. and if we mimic that on the landscape it just goes to reason that our success rate will be better if we are trying to mimic the conditions in which they do best right if we are trying to mimic as much brood habitat out there as possible by extension, we're going to have higher chick survival and then more coveys to scare us when we go hunting next <laughs> I time. I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's just common sense. Yep. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's not like you have to, like, listen to this thing multiple times to be able to understand. It's just like the light bulb goes off. Oh, well, if I manage natives and, and natural succession um, and, and have these disturbances on the landscape in the way that nature intended it, I will have more wildlife. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's it is. awesome. Yeah. And it's so fun to think about because if we, if we honestly simplify the game and try not to, like, complicate our management and just return simply to the basics, if, if you're, like, getting into land management and you're like, Matt, Frank, Adam, Kyle, Chad, what is it that I need to know? I'm going to, I'm literally, I'm not going to talk to you about food plots. Right. I'm going to literally go down to the basic biology 101 yep. and be like, okay, this has to be in place. And when this is in place, then this happens. And when then that happens, you get early successional plants and deer eat those. And then deer use that for cover. And then that broods new turkeys and all this stuff. Yep. You have to go to square one to understand how to manage the remainder of a, a, a property to, to make more of these critters out there you have to know the basics yes you can't look past it if you don't if you you don't you've got to understand the biology of the species that you're dealing with it's critical and it's also important then um to understand the landscape in which you're that you're dealing with Mm -hmm. you need to understand if your property if you've got a property that is that is all timber it's important to know if you've got bottomland hardwood that's true forest yep are you dealing with a a a woodland potential are you dealing with an area that could be potentially a glade you know knowing what you've got and knowing or longleaf pine savanna yeah shortleaf pine savanna yeah prairie knowing what it knowing what the the potential of it was what it was historically what the potential could be you're going to be be more successful in raising the type of species 
that belong there, right? Or, or that are going to thrive there. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to manage for something that doesn't belong there mm-hmm. or, or is just not going to do well no matter what you do. And that is a frustrating thing, and it's just a waste of effort. So, you know, don't make this any harder than it has to be, you know. And, and one of the things is, is, like you mentioned, go back to 101, look at the biology of the species. What do they need to survive? What do they need to thrive? But let's also step back to when they are first hatched or when they are first born, what do they need to get them to that harvestable stage, right? Yep. We can't just start thinking about, I'm going to manage my adult population because we may not get an adult population if we don't try to manage the juvenile population. That's, That's super absolutely, critical. Absolutely right. And I don't know that we think about it as much or pay enough attention to it. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing is, is in the is, is at least in the 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 quail world and the, in the real upland game world the uh, the idea of brood habitat is as has been has been developed and, and we really got have a grasp on it what's really cool to see is that in the turkey world that's really becoming important too it is. there's really a, there's a lot of buzz yep. about nesting success and about brood habitat because it is so poor and and it is potentially um, resulting, and it is, and it is potentially um, a real bottleneck, a real yep. problem that mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. And I, w- one of the things that I'm really excited about is because there is so much jazz behind wild turkeys in terms of attention. There's many more wild turkey hunters than there are upland game bird hunters. Right. Um, that there's going to be a lot of focus on brood habitat for turkeys but it's going to benefit so many other species and i'm really excited about that yeah that that we can you know these 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 turkeys can can really this idea of of increasing brood habitat and nesting success for turkeys because the population is struggling i mean some of the places that i hunt in southwest missouri are down 50 percent the number of gobbling birds than they were just Mm -hmm. 10 years ago Mm -hmm. right um, and that's, I mean, that's tough, you know, that, that's a tangible difference that makes, that makes it that much more harder to harvest one. Uh, but there is a lot of attention now on, on the turkey decline. And, and I'm really excited that, that, that brood habitat, yeah. the other ancillary b- benefits of, is of re- yeah, is really becoming in the forefront. Yeah. Because, you know, and we've, we've talked about it a lot on, on podcast about, um, so much focus on white-tailed deer management, and um, that's good, but it doesn't go as far as it needs to typically on, on the most common practices for addressing those instances, the time windows uh, of rearing broods. Most of the practices that are most common out there, I mean, hinge cut doesn't do squat for them. So, like, like it's, it's, a, it's a very selfish, let's say, practice um, if you're looking to just promote whitetail yeah you're gonna do it but it's not gonna do a dang thing for broods and making more turkeys out there so we have to be definitely intentional in our management of what are your goals what are you trying to do get it done and get it done on on the basics and the principles of what that species needs and i think that 
I don't know if you're are you done, done wrapping up on the the broods and game birds. Yeah, I think I think that's the really the point that I was wanting to make is is this 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 weather impact mm-hmm. and really really understanding when we are talking about wet springs what that really means. Yeah, um, and then how we can try to improve the conditions to, to mitigate for some of these losses. Definitely, I mean it's it's super important. Like I said, to understand correct good information. And as we're talking about young and, and starting off strong and having everything required on the landscape, we do have to go to fawns. In most places across the country, the fawns aren't really having much of an issue to find or, or let's say, have good or better reproduction rates. Deer aren't hurting. Deer aren't suffering. However... That doesn't mean that habitat cannot be improved. It's They're making a living as a generalist species in a lot of areas that they shouldn't be in. But if you're having, and, ju- and just because they are reproducing, doesn't mean, again, that they are in the peak top performance fitness as an individual that they should be. So, Again, deer are generalists, so they mm-hmm. can be in a lot of different landscapes. They can survive, reproduce, whatever. But if we're talking about getting started out as a fawn being born and dropped into an environment, that individual and its fitness and its opportunity and its potential starts really at gestation. However, let's just call it when it is born. Mm-hmm. When it drops and it hits the ground, yep. that's when the rubber meets the road for that individual animal. So if you are a big buck killer and you want big deer, if that animal, as a fawn, five and a half years previous to whenever you harvested it, mm-hmm. if that animal started out in an environment where it did not have adequate cover or it did not have adequate early successional vegetation and it suffered as it was getting started, mm-hmm. that animal is always going to be behind the eight ball. Yeah. It, it is very right. difficult for that animal as it's developing. And, and the important thing, just like you experience a lot with the game birds, is fawns develop so rapidly, it's incredible. Yeah. So if, if the growth that they experience in this first two months of life, if you're behind on that it you were talking years to catch up on that kind of type of development if if they can right if they can right if if that opportunity or that landscape that the species the plant communities in that landscape even allow for it down the road you have to have what you need to have and there's really no no uh i guess questioning it and and i think that we see so many deer out there we see so many great, let's say, bucks as a four-and-a-half-year-old. But I have to bring up the point of, well, how much better can it be? How much better can it be? Yes. Like, yeah, you're, you're experiencing yeah. and you're killing some some fantastic deer, but, like, why are you why are you putting the bar there? Why, why not think, hey, I have – I don't have an issue with, with fawning – um, worth recruitment, I, I, I get enough through there, but but do I have the right species that is going to 
um, get them kickstarted off in the right direction. And I think, like, like today, Buckbrush, we were, we were on yep. the property today. We saw Buckbrush, and um, a fawn could hide in Buckbrush really pretty well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, if you stash a, a, a doe stashes a fawn in Buckbrush, structure-wise, the amount of leaf out it's got right now when fawns are hitting ground, it's going to be hidden. But what if all you have is buckbrush in your timber? Well, there's not much to forage on. No. And so it might be able to hide, but nutrition and individual fitness, that animal is going to be behind others in, it, let's just say, a neighboring property or... Or if you start doing habitat work for five years hard, and then you start to do, um, and, and then you reevaluate, let's just say, overall condition of the uh, a deer at six months old, and you and you harvest a few fawns, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But if you do that and you were to analyze weights, maybe you could go from from forty five pounds live weight to sixty pounds mm-hmm. live weight. We have like that six months of life is, is just so incredibly important. So I don't want people to think of whitetails as like, hey, we we've seen the cap. We're as good as we can be because we we got a deer to five and a half, and he was a hundred and sixty inch deer. Congratulations, man! That's a that is something to celebrate. I mean, that's great. But as an individual, did that deer from day one have everything that it needed, or was there a point in which it was suffering, and therefore, as an individual, it was playing catch up the whole and way? And it never reached the full potential. We won't know that, right? But right. it definitely begs the question. Yes, absolutely. And, and I guess not to humanize deer at all, but let's think about it for like humans are are very research. So if if a if a child is born into less than ideal home situation, mm-hmm. um it or, or it's malnourished, malnourished as a, as, right. a, as a young child, right. developmentally it's behind for yeah. a long time. That's right. We we know that. Science tells us that and it's pray for those kids and those homes and it's very it's very sad to think about. However, same thing can be said for fawns. Same thing can be said for any game species that you're trying to promote. Individual fitness is incredibly important for it to reach potential, its max potential mm-hmm. down the road. Mm-hmm. D- just because you have good reproduction numbers out of fawns doesn't mean they have everything that they need as a generalist species. But it's hard to convince people of mm-hmm. that. It's yeah, I mean, if they see absolute numbers, right? Absolute numbers are are powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a lot of deer. I've got a lot of fawns. I, you know, my fawn to doe ratio is pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, but that doesn't tell the entire story. No, because, and I've done research on uh, fawn recruitment. So we would collar collar fawns. We go around thermal imaging units, find them, mm-hmm. put a collar on them, and then every day check them. So if they if they read a code um, on the transmitter that said okay they're they've been still for longer than half hour, we or the heartbeat's a little off, we need to go in and check them. We were finding fawns not predated on, but they were emaciated, they were abandoned, they were born, but then there's probably a twin involved in the situation, mm-hmm. or the mother's fitness wasn't good enough and she could not she could not produce enough milk lactate enough and she would abandon that fawn yeah and we see we saw that commonly 
So it's like, just because you see a doe with a fawn, well, guys, it could have been two. She could have dropped two. Yes. Yeah. Very and, easily. You know, that's that's not uncommon in the mammal world. No. Um, places, so just talk about black bears, you know, in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our black bear population in Missouri is growing. It's not growing maybe at the rate that other states are. If you look at New Jersey, mm. their, their black bear population is taking Triples off. Triples all the time yeah, out there. Yeah, and I talked to one of their biologists. He's like, dude, they have so much food. They have, they have the, the females have such good resources. And so with with black bears, they will their embryos. If if it's if it's poor, then these embryos are not implanted, and they they can be they have they delayed be, implantation. Yeah, they delayed implantation, and so they can they can essentially abort those embryos and not have the the potential numbers of cubs that they could. The litter, they can basically dictate litter size yep, on yep, their body condition. Yep. And in places like New Jersey, I was talking to this guy and he said, "Well, they're eating Big Macs and 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 out of a dumpster, <laughs> right? And french yeah. fries." So they're yeah. super healthy. Now that's not the best way to go. Right, but the right. point is is They need um, more Chick-fil-A in their diet. Oh man. Gee, don't. Imagine they'd have like 5 cubs. Oh man, they would. That's, well, that's that's the secret to game management right there. Uh-huh. Black bear management. Yeah. Chick-fil-A. We're on to something. Think we can get a research project going? I don't think 12 count would do it, though. Oh, no. No, no, no. At least 24. Well. But who would be silly enough to, like, throw that out in trash? Well, see, you you couldn't. And you couldn't trap them with Chick-fil-A because I think you would catch other folks. Yeah. Right? I'd be be in the trap. You'd be in that trap every day. Culver trap? I'd I'd stick my head in there. in there again. That's in there again. Tag me, guys. I will be back tomorrow. Yep, yep. But... But the point is, and I think your 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 point is is well made. Is is we need to give these critters the best chance possible. Let's not be just happy with absolute numbers mm-hmm. that we see on the landscape. Let's talk about individual fitness. And and even in a in a game bird world, um, fitness is super critical. Oh yeah. Um, you know, in in Texas, there are issues. With the, a lot of the quail down there in, in the west side of Texas, or in West Texas, have high loads of parasites, whether mm-hmm. it's eye worms or cecal worms. Yep. Um, we don't know really what what impact that has on population abundances, but we do know that individual fitness has got to be reduced. If you've got eighty eye worms in your eye, absolutely, then your fitness is reduced. Your potential is reduced so and they're working on some same of that. thing with with tick loads on on mammals bingo it's incredible yep. yeah and that's i mean we could talk about all this stuff but yep. i guess the point is is um we need to look at providing these critters the best possible chance not mm-hmm. only they can be hatched or born but once they are hatched or once they are born the best chance to to get them start in their life yes and get them rolling for game birds high protein diets bingo insects invertebrates of all kinds um two two weeks into a fawn's life it's it's eating green vegetation like we have to have palatable young early successional plants out there browse that they can forage on within reach guys yep like think about that for a second well there you go and I think we're going to talk about that down the road with with these game bird situ- critters. Mm-hmm. Is is if if you're looking and evaluating habitat and you're walking through it, like oh, there's all kinds of grasshoppers, all kinds of leaf hoppers. Well, 
Maybe. But are those things in reach, right? Uh-huh. Are they available? Mm-hmm. If they can't get to them, then they might as well it's not no, be any there, no right? No good. Right. It's, it's so, just like evaluating we, on the property today. We're evaluating an elm tree. If that, if those elm leaves and all the brows is 30 foot up, that does that deer zero good. Yep. If you cut it, it will regenerate. Now it will be good. But right now in its current state, it is not good. Same thing with, with the level at which insects are operating on, on the landscape. But they're not in reach. They're not doing pulse no. and, and young quail any good. That's right. That's right. A lot we, of things to think about. Man, it, it, it makes your head spin like, well, how can I even do this? Well, you can. Diversity. You can. Yeah, you can. And, and a lot of it will take care of itself if you just get back to the native landscape to the best way mm-hmm. you pop, or native vegetation a lot of that stuff will take care of itself because god intended it yes. to work in that manner and and the and the species will will respond they will respond and likely do well yeah if I they're mean, there they will likely do very there very are well case study after case study after case and examples of clients that you've worked with mm-hmm. that have seen the results of of your recommendations. It it, it does work. It does it absolutely work. does work. Well, guys, appreciate you listening to this podcast. We hope that um, the perspective of managing, whether it's game birds, whether it's white-tailed deer, has certainly changed as we understand the important role um, that we play into the system, but, but how critical it is to be mindful of when they're young. When they're first born, when they're first hatched, we have to understand what's happening there in the landscape at their level. And we probably couldn't even lay flat enough to understand what a quail looks like. But we have to do our best. And we have to be, again, super mindful of um, the species that we're trying to promote on the property. Um, Invasives, they're not doing it. They don't. They don't have the same value to wildlife. We can go on and on, but um, hopefully it was certainly eye-opening to you guys. Um, if you have any questions, please reach out. We are doing a lot of uh, management videos on YouTube. Um, a lot of potential to be able to um, see how um, see what we see essentially. You know, kind of go through our eyes of management. Um, when we when we go and see a property or we're evaluating a, pr- a prescribed fire, um, so hope you guys will check those out: social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, as well as YouTube. Um, thanks again, guys. Frank, got anything? That's it. Nope. Thanks Perfect. for uh, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy you it. You bet, man. Well, guys, we will see you next week. Appreciate you listening. <laughs>